Over the last few weeks, you have heard a common theme from this pulpit. Be ready for Jesus' return. Well, today we continue this theme of being ready for Jesus' return. Every year, as we end one liturgical year and begin another, the church calendar assigns lessons that are focused on this theme of the return of Jesus at the end of the age. This year, the readings uh, have been from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, which is a section known as the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus spoke these words to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. The disciples had asked Jesus to tell them when he will return again and what that was going to be like. And so Jesus responds with this lengthy discourse. And the main point of Jesus' response is this. His disciples must be ready for his return. But each section of this discourse adds more color. Each part of the discourse adds a little bit of, of new light on what it means to be ready for Jesus' return. And as we come to the parable of the talents today, Jesus has already made it clear to his disciples that they must be prepared for his return because first, they don't know when it will be. Second, they will be required to give an account of their actions when he returns. And third, his return may appear at first to be long delayed. That was what we heard last week in the parable of the ten virgins. Now, each of these emphases, uh, it comes up in our parable today, but, but none of them are the main point. No, the main point of our parable this morning is that we are to wait for Jesus' return as those who are commissioned to improve their master's assets. We are to wait for Jesus' return as those commissioned to improve their master's assets. That's what this parable is all about. Jesus wants his followers to know that waiting is not simply a, a passive thing. This parable teaches that there is, is an active element to waiting. Jesus stresses in this parable that being prepared means being productive. Being ready means getting busy. Waiting for Jesus' return doesn't merely mean watching, but working. I confess to you that I often think uh, about that t-shirt or bumper sticker whenever I think about Jesus' return, the, you know, the one that says, Jesus is coming back, look busy. And every time I, I think of that, I smile because I think of the times in my life where I was unprepared for class and I knew that if I just avoided eye contact with the teacher or if I could simply look busy, maybe my lack of preparation would go unnoticed. My strategy never seemed to be successful, sadly. Um, you know, it's comical to think of a child looking busy in the classroom or maybe when they're unprepared for something they were told to do in the home, but if you change the image just slightly, it becomes a little less comedic. Think of a doctor looking busy at the time of surgery because he's unprepared, or a lawyer scrambling to look busy in the courtroom before the judge because he's not ready. These things are less funny, they're more sad. How infinitely more sad it will be for those who are unprepared and merely try to look busy when Jesus Christ returns, 
who is the true and ultimate judge. If looking busy was futile in my attempts to escape the eye of my teacher, how much more futile it will be to try and escape the all-seeing eye of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our parable this morning teaches us that being prepared for Jesus' return means that his followers, not, they must not merely look busy, but they must get busy, putting the things that they've been entrusted with to use. And Jesus highlights three things that should motivate his followers to do just that. And it's these three things that I want to spend the time that we have this morning focusing on in order to motivate his followers to improve the assets that they've been given, Jesus focuses on these three things. First, the riches entrusted, the rewards promised, and the warning rendered. The riches entrusted, the rewards promised, and the warning rendered. So first, the riches entrusted. Jesus has just said at the end of the previous lesson, watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. And he continues to say, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. I think we often approach this parable and we're quick to think of the skills and abilities that, that God has given each of us. But that's not what this master is entrusting into his servants. No, he's not imparting to them kind of what we think of as a talent. He's not giving to them the ability to play the violin or to, to juggle or something like that. No, a talent in Jesus's day was a unit of measurement. It was a unit of weight. It usually referred to gold or silver, and it was a massive amount of money. One single talent was estimated to be worth roughly 20 years' wages. You know, that means each of these three servants have been entrusted with a wealth of riches. Now, yes, it's true that the master doesn't always give to each the same way. And when we look at the New Testament, at things like the spiritual gifts, we see the same principle there, that God does not apportion all the same amount or the same kind. But the point being made here is that what God entrusts to each and every Christian is an incredible sum for which they are responsible to use for his kingdom. You know, this is why Andrew every uh, semester leads the spiritual gifts workshop so that Christians become, can become aware of the, the spiritual gifts that God's entrusted to them in order that they might use them in his service. God has distributed different gifts according to his free and gracious choice. But notice each servant, who's even the one that's given the, the very least in this parable, has an incredible amount of money. Have you ever stopped and considered the immeasurable riches that belong to every single Christian? Think of the gifts and the privileges that belong to each Christian. Christians have, they have a new and unending life in Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them to guide them, to cleanse them. They've been adopted into a new family, God's royal family, and they have a new secure identity. 
They have a peace that can weather the most bitter of betrayals, the most devastating of losses. They've been knit together in this amazing community called the church, which Jesus says is a community of people who are so bound together that it's a bond stronger than any family or friendship knows. And God designed this community of the church to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens in every single season. And every Christian has what are called the means of grace at their disposal. The means of grace are those special gifts that God gives to further and deepen the relationship he has with his children. They include things like prayer, holy communion, or as we will see in a moment, holy baptism. So let me ask you this morning, all these things that I just mentioned, is that typically how you think of these things? As a wealth of riches given to you? Every Christian has been given an embarrassment of riches. And the question before us this morning is, what will we do with the riches we've been given? Will we put what we've been given to good use, or will we simply bury it in the ground? The first way Jesus seeks to motivate us to use what we've been given is by focusing on the wealth of the riches he's bestowed on us. The second motivation he gives is uh, looking at the rewards he promises. It says that now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts, and he who had received five talents came forward, and bringing five talents more, he said to the master, you've delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. And his master says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The rewards that Jesus uh, would have his followers consider can be summed up in just three simple words. Praise, promotion, and participation. So praise, you know, it's not wrong to want to be praised. I think if we're all honest, we long to hear words of approval and affirmation. Our problem is not that we long for praise, but rather we aim far too low when it comes to whose praise we long for. Christian counselor Ed Welch wrote a great book on fear and anxiety called When People Are Big and God is Small. And the title says it all because at the heart of fear and anxiety is the belief that God is either too small, too incapable of meeting our needs, or else he's just too malicious. People who are dominated by, by fear and anxiety, they have too small a view of God and too large a view of mankind. Seeking the approval of men is, is a really powerful motivator. But anyone who's tried to get the praise of others knows just how elusive it can be to get. And even if you're one of the lucky few who actually get it, you know that keeping it for longer than 15 minutes is actually incredibly difficult. There's always someone smarter, more beautiful, more talented that always seems to be waiting just around the corner. You see, when you work for the praise 
and approval of men. Your life will be shaped by the standards and norms of men. You will inevitably cut corners. You will go places you never envisioned going, and you will do things you never thought you would do. Instead, when when our hearts are more concerned about what God thinks, we will work out of a motivation of love and gratitude. When God's voice and his heart matters most to you, no longer will your work be an opportunity to, to get the attention of other people. Now it becomes an opportunity to gratefully serve as a response to the one who gave everything for you. The first reward of these uh, promise to the servants is praise, the praise of their master. Well done. Do you long to hear those words from your maker at the end of the age? The second reward that they receive is promotion. You've been faithful over a little, the master says. I'm going to set you over much. And I think we're all wondering, a little? Even the the servant who was put in charge of of just one was 20 years' wages. That would have been the equivalent of millions of dollars. And the master says, you've been put in charge of a little? I love this because so often we think of, of heaven in such pitiful ways. We often think of heaven as that place where there's the cute baby angels playing the harps on the clouds. That's not the image in this parable that Jesus gives of heaven. Did you pick up? Pick up on what it is. The, the servants, they, they had business that they were attending to. They had some prowess in their business. They took the millions of dollars they were entrusted with and they put their money to work. They didn't have a, a stock market or anything like that, so probably what they did was bought and sold other businesses, maybe a, a fishing company or maybe a vineyard. And after some time of doing business, they made 100% profit. And the master says to them, great work. Now I'm going to give you a real job. You see, heaven's not a place that you go after you finish all your work just to hang up your spurs and to rest on your laurels. Heaven is a place where all the skills and the expertise that you gain in this life will be put to even greater use in the next There will be even more responsibility, more exciting adventures. Except the work that we will do there will no longer be cursed by thorns and thistles. There won't be any futility or frustration in our work the way it is plagued here. Doesn't that excite you? It excites me to think about eternity like that. That's a a much grander vision of eternity a place of adventure and growth where the stakes are even higher than they are here. I think in our heart of hearts, we know that a place that's just pure leisure will eventually, after some time, become a kind of hell where the things that once once brought us so much pleasure will just turn to ash in our mouth. The vision of heaven in this parable is a place where good and faithful servants are promoted from the minor leagues to the majors. God's now ready to give them a real job. Jesus wants his followers to consider the promised rewards of praise and promotion and finally participation in their master's joy. You know, praise and promotion, they're great things, but the real marvel in this parable is that 
for really the only time, the image of the servant and the master starts to shift almost, and it it fades into the background, and a new image appears, one of a host welcoming his beloved guests into a feast. At the end of the day, the servants deliver over their profit, and they get to enjoy some fruition of the work that they did. They get to participate and celebrate with their master and enjoy him. It's a wonderful picture of heaven where where it's not just the things that are there, but God himself, our relationship with him, that is the greatest reward. We are to be prepared for Jesus' return as those commissioned to improve the master's assets. And Jesus motivates us to do this first by drawing our attention to what we've been entrusted with and how rich it is. And secondly, by having us consider the rewards that are promised. But finally, he motivates us by rendering a warning to those who are unfaithful. This last servant approaches his master with the same talent that he received at the start in exactly the same condition, no better, no worse. And he receives a very stern rebuke. He has his talent taken away and given to the one who has the ten talents. And he finds himself, in the end, cast out into the outer darkness. And we should ask, I think, what exactly was so bad about what this servant did? After all, he didn't squander his master's resources, like, say, the prodigal son in another one of Jesus' parables. No, in fact, he protected what he was given, and he delivered it back securely just as he received it. You see, part of the the sting of this parable is that this uh, this servant's actions don't seem on the surface to warrant the kind of consequence that comes. It seems disproportionate to the offense. And it's precisely at this part of the parable that it becomes clear what Jesus' main point is. His followers are his servants, and as such, they have an obligation to be about his business. They have a, a duty to be concerned with the things that he's concerned about, and they must labor diligently towards the desires of their master to be prepared for his return. His servants must not only preserve what has been entrusted, but they have to improve and make use of what's been given. The message of this parable is simple. Use it or lose it. Unless we are striving to make use of the things we've been given, then we should expect nothing short of this same rejection and sorrow that this pitiful servant received. To simply bury what we've been given is to betray a fundamental lack of concern for our master. And if we are to heed this warning, we need to ask, well, what are the things in our lives that cause us to maybe bury our talent? Why would we do such a thing? And there's a few things, I think, that are going on inside of this wicked servant. First, he may have been envious of the other two servants. They were, in fact, trusted with a lot more. They had two talents and five talents. It says that they were each entrusted according to their ability. That's kind of offensive. Maybe they were resentful. He was resentful of them. And he just threw up his hands and said, I'm not going to do anything about my talent. 
I think you and I can fall prey to that same sort of thinking, the same greed and envy and entitlement when it comes to what God has given us. And if we're going to heed Jesus' warning, we need to recognize that our obligation to steward what we've been given doesn't depend on how much we've been given or how much others have been given. We have to be about the work that is given to us individually. Another reason the servant may have wasted his talent can be found in what the master says. He says uh, that he was afraid, is what he told the master. He believed that his master was a, a hard man. Now, nothing in the parable indicated that this master was hard at all. He feared that the master was going to exploit all that he had done. And my friends, we should note that that same fear of exploitation, that was the same fear in the very beginning in the garden where Adam and Eve were tempted to believe the lie that submission to God would result in their exploitation. And, and Satan still tries to prey on our fear that obedience to him will result in oppression. He still tries to convince us that true freedom is found in thrusting off our obligation to be obedient. But when we succumb to that fear, we end up falling prey to the very thing we fear the most. We become a slave in the end. We become a slave to ourself. St. Augustine put it like this. He said, a good man, though a slave, is free. But a wicked man, though a king, is a slave. For he serves not one man alone, but what is worse, as many masters as he has vices. John Milton in Paradise Lost put it the same way similarly when he said, Satan whispers to us that it's better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And Jesus' words could not be any more different in Mark 8 when he says, he who would save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel will find it. A third reason we may bury and waste our talent can be seen in the description of this wicked servant that the master gives. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. Dorothy Sayers in her work, Creed or Chaos, says sloth isn't what we typically think of as laziness. She says sloth is rather a life that is driven by a cost-benefit analysis of what's in it for me. It's the sin which believes nothing, cares for nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. The punchline of this parable is that this servant is wicked, not because he's greedy, not because he's too ambitious, but because he has no ambition at all. Faithful service is marked not by an absence of ambition, but the presence of a holy ambition. That means being captivated at the prospect of, of leveraging all that we have and all that we are for Jesus Christ and his kingdom, not for our sake, but for his. So if we're gonna heed Jesus' warning of not being like this wicked servant, let us be on guard against envy and bitterness, fear, obstinance, and sloth. My friends, let us be prepared for Christ's return by being productive for his kingdom, maximizing the assets that he's given us with a holy ambition. Let's look at the amazing riches we've been given. 
Consider the great rewards that are promised and heed the warning that Jesus renders to those who neglect to serve him. Amen.